All right, guys, coming at you today with episode five of Coaches Q&A. I have Connor here, Connor Matthews of Revolution Performance. You want to introduce yourself, Connor? Thanks for having me on, Aaron. Uh, my name is Connor. I run Revolution 3 Performance. Uh, I started this company in January 2020. I was an exercise science student in my second year back then. I'm currently in my third and final year at Deakin. And I was already doing a lot of training, like a lot of programming for my friends. So I thought, well, I was sort of planning on decking out the home gym anyway. So I, I decked that out and then I started training people from home. And now I also train people online. And uh, I, yeah, I trained different athletes and general population people. And the sort of main idea was to just get some experience with coaching while I was doing my degree. And that sort of uh, became more of a part-time job, which is really cool because it's obviously something I really enjoy. 100%. Yeah, I love that. As you've grown up playing basketball as well, and that's obviously influenced a lot of your sort of training ideologies and methodologies, you've also run a few different sort of like systems over the years. What, what have you really found to work for your own development and that you'd still employ today in terms of different systems and ideologies like that? It's a good question. And I think if you ask a lot of strength and conditioning coaches, they come from a place of uh, being a, a crappy athlete themselves and then wanting to get better. Oh, yeah. It's, it's such a common story. Uh, in terms of what I work, the, the most important thing with any training program, I think, is consistency. If you're con constantly jumping between, it's not to say you can't have some variety, but if you're constantly jumping between really, really polarizingly different programs, you just, um, you're not really developing any kind of consistent progress with your training. Uh, look, the fundamentals do work. Uh, like getting stronger, improving your power, improving your elasticity until they sort of don't because there's going to be a certain point where uh, conventional fundamental stuff just doesn't give you enough of a stimulus to keep improving. So one thing that's probably really the most important development I think I made with my own training was expanding the, uh, the variety of content I was taking in to try and learn. And Aaron's been really good with that for me. He's put me under a lot of different people who have uh, some, some different thoughts and some challenge, some conventional wisdom, which has led me to do some different stuff that, you know, several years ago I wouldn't have done, but I've made, made my best progress lately, moving away from a more conventional model of just get strong, just get strong uh, and just trying to train different movement, uh, different in different planes of motion, train different movements. Uh, and yeah, just kind of opening up my, my thinking overall to what my training should look like. I love that. Yeah. I think it's the sort of thing where, if you surround yourself with everyone thinking the exact same sort of thoughts as you, you're essentially in an echo chamber and there's not really the ability to grow from being challenged, from being sort of provoked into other streams of thinking and expanding beyond just what you're doing at the time is obviously crucial to, to grow as an athlete, as a coach, as just a general thinker and to be challenged and have to grow through experience and being like being basically prompted to grow from that experience yeah, it challenges you in a good way there. All right. Being a very busy man, and I appreciate you able to carve out a bit of time to come on my podcast here. How do you find the balance of your own sport, your own coaching in sport, running your own business and coaching people through SNC, university, and having some sort of semblance of a life between Melbourne lockdowns? Good question. Um, I probably need to reflect on this question more myself because I... I, I back and wonder why or how i'm doing slices you know the more things you try and fit into your schedule and essentially the more things you say yes to the more things you're going to have to say no to um i don't want to sound too cliche here but i generally do get up pretty early and try and, and belt my stuff out early in the morning like my university and the stuff that i, I probably don't uh is not as hands-on and maybe not as interesting i'll get that done early in the day so i can enjoy my other stuff 
but just being really time efficient and just knowing um, how to prioritize certain things. Like there's going to be points with any coach's journey where they're going to have to put their training secondary to training their athletes. And that's happened at times. There's, you know, I've definitely had to cut back the amount of training. Uh, even, even I'm coaching two basketball teams at the moment. I'll be coaching one next year just because I can't, I can't handle the load. But yeah, just knowing, knowing at what point in time what the priority is. Like before exams, uni picks up a little bit, but generally I'm pretty cruisy with uni. Uh, I think that like uni is great, but definitely the hands-on stuff is what's going to help me more improve. And yeah, I, there's obviously social stuff you say no to, but again, I generally try to balance it pretty well. But just having the self-awareness to reflect on when there's too much going on, uh, as much as you know, doing I am doing different things, so it's not like I'm doing the same thing uh, repetitively again and again every day. There's gonna, there's definitely points where I'm like I'm just doing too much. This is just hitting me all at once. I need to take a few days off, and that's the advantage of working for yourself is I have a bit more flexibility over my hours, so I can kind of manipulate that when I need a bit more time. 100%. I get that entirely. I think it's an interesting in the, the coaching realm specifically where you get to the, the very early stages and you want to take on as much as you can. You want to grow. You want to have all these experiences and develop yourself. And you get to a point where either a lot of people start to burn out, you start to have your own priorities neglected, you start to neglect yourself as a person and your needs and the like, or you just can't deliver yourself in a and a, a proper manner to a lot of your clients where you're basically spreading yourself too thin and you're giving 50% here, 50% here, 20% here, 30% there. And you're doing everyone a disservice essentially, including yourself there by spreading yourself so thin. Like my sort of philosophy is you're much better off cutting down the overall things you're doing there, but actually delivering to everybody to the best of your ability and let your quality sort of show through rather than just sheer quantity there. And especially with something like basketball where you're coaching like youth athletes as well. Like if you're there and it's not exactly a, a, a great performance, you're giving a suboptimal sort of version of yourself. Like you're trying to mold them to become better in the future beyond just the court as well. And if you are paying half attention and the like and sort of just like, oh, yeah, go, go run this drill, just sort of do whatever over there. Like it's a massive disservice to their development and they can reflect very poorly back on that time. Like thinking back to my own sort of experiences with like junior soccer and the like where my coaches were essentially just turning up to turn up, not really yeah. putting a huge amount of effort in or the like. And that kind of adds a bit of disdain to the to the experience there. Like you're not excited to go to training. You're like, oh, all right, got to go through the motion sort of thing. And I think yeah. that applies to personal training, strength, conditioning, all of the above where everyone knows the a PT that has like 40 plus sessions a week of all these cram back to back and, how many sessions in a day can you really give yourself to properly? Like I feel obviously the numbers going to be different for everyone, depending on how intensive they are, how long the sessions are and the like, but anything beyond six to eight hours, you, you really start to, to struggle to be able to actually have that emotional connection and pay attention properly as well. Like how's your experience with that in terms of big days where you've got uni basketball coaching and all of the above? Yeah. So my Thursdays are my worst, well, not worst, my busiest day. Mm. So I get up at um, 4.50. I work at the gym at Deakin uh, as a customer service officer. I think that's my official role from 5.45 till nine. Then I go home and I have uni from 10 till two. And then I have personal training, usually three to five. And then I coach basketball five till seven. Then I have PT 7.30 till 9.30. <laughs> Um, so it's a pretty crazy day. Again, if I did that every day, I think I'd last about three weeks. And then I'd want to say, go how, and, how sustainable is that? <laughs> <laughs> I'd want to go and become a guitarist or something totally different. But 
esports. Yeah, it's with with quality and quantity. Like, I don't think they're necessarily polar opposites. I think you can deliver a a high quantity service in good quality, but I don't think they're always going to be like you're never going to have your highest quality performance with your highest quantity, right? So. Mm -hmm. Just finding a happy point there, as you said, with that sort of six to eight hour mark, I think, well, I tend to spread mine out and because I'm only part-time, I'm, I'm not doing as many sessions as you, I'm probably doing, I think, well, not, not in lockdown peak, I'd probably do 25 hours a week mm-hmm. and that would be sort of, uh, yeah, six, four hour days, roughly maybe a five hour day, but I'm, I'm pretty lucky. a good sustainable amount. Yeah. Um, I like, I might, I might do, um, 10 a.m. till midday and then like 7 till 9 p.m. and then do my other stuff. So Very PT kind of hour-esque. Yeah. I feel like that's something like... that can work for or against you as well, depending on how you adapt to the sort of hours. Like say a normal day for myself might be something like 6 to 9 and then 12 to 2 and then maybe like 4 to 7.30 or something like that where it's three distinct sort of blocks there. And how how well you can adapt to that sort of lifestyle can really underpin you whether you're going to succeed or fail with that sort of thing as well. Like, am I able to fit the things I need to do around that rather than having say like a conventional sort of nine to five and having before work and after work as very distinctive times, like how well can you sort of fit what you need to do amongst all these other responsibilities? So it's essentially a juggling game at that point as well. And I think the average time span for a PT is something in the three to six month range before people either leave the industry, maybe potentially burn out, don't succeed due to many different reasons and the like. And I think the the lifestyle of that is definitely something that plays a factor on that. Yeah, a hundred percent. It's easy for me to say, and it's, you know, it's probably at some point in the near future going to be easy for you to say with the home setup, but mm. um, you know, I, if, if someone cancels on me or, you know, if I have sessions that are spread out, even if I have a 20 minute gap between sessions, I take six steps and I'm in my bedroom from, from my gym. So, you know, I can go and I can be in my living room and have something to eat. So it's kind of easy to break those up. But in terms of the personal training thing, I think the other issue is as well is a lot of people, uh, and you see this in the exercise science degree, they don't necessarily know what they want to do. They like sport. So they're like, oh, exercise, sport, yeah. science. That sounds kind of smart. My parents want me to go to uni. And they go and do that or they go and do their Cert 3-4 in personal training, realized on the scope of things to know, they know not even enough to, barely enough to get by often. Yeah. And they realize that it's a harder job and that people are often, people can be stupid, but people can also be smart. People know if they're getting better and if they feel better. And if you're just doing the bare minimum stuff to get to it in a Cert 3-4, I don't think you can have a great retention in an extremely competitive industry. 100%. Unless you have some very sort of extenuous extraneous skill, like you're very good at sales and are able to basically get by off that alone, you're always bringing new people in and the like, or you have can you connect with a certain demographic. Like I know, like say like pre-postnatal is quite a good one there as an example where you have a specific niche that you can be great within and operate within that scope and let everything else sort of take care of itself. But obviously that's few and far between as an example there. But I think, yeah, it is quite interesting that people's essentially a, a bullshit radar is, is quite good. Like people know when you're just coming up with something, especially from one session, two sessions, three, you might be able to sort of fake it. But talking more long-term, like a month, two months, three months, like people, people catch you out. Like you can tell when someone is just fluffing and they don't really know what they're talking about versus someone that is knowledgeable about their craft dedicated to improving themselves about their craft and i think a bit of an underrated one is imploring it themselves like 
when you walk into a gym and you see your PT and they're incredibly out of shape, like what does that, the, the initial impression there is probably not a good one. Like obviously there are circumstances where say like a high, le- high level weightlifting coach or something that has years of technical background, but doesn't compete anymore, different circumstance, but you're run of the mill, walk into a gym PT, like you'd, you'd hope they're in decent shape. Like if you're in better shape than your PT, what does that reflect on them? Yeah. And it's, uh, sort of drawing back from that point earlier about coaches and maintaining work-life balance, like as a, as a sports coach, and this is something I've improved a lot from self-reflection in probably the last six to eight months is that if you're preaching to your kids to drink water and go to sleep and you're getting six hours of sleep and you're not drinking, like you're just, you're a hypocrite. And it's the same with, with personal training and strength coaching. If you're saying to your athletes, Oh, you know, you're not doing your rehab work. If physio gave you or uh, you're, you're late or stuff like that. Like, if you're going to say things to people like that, you've got to, you've got to be, you set you know, the standard. Yeah, exactly. You've got to, you've got to be able to say to them, well, you know, I'm doing it all. It should go without saying they should mm. have enough trust in you and they should be able to tell from the way you conduct yourselves as a health professional that you're doing those things. I couldn't agree more strongly. hundred percent. I'm glad. It's, it's kind of funny how, how we actually came into contact. I remember you reached out to me regarding the, uh, the my jump Two app and, I think I yes. put a post up on it somewhat recently around that time, or maybe a hashtag it or something. And yeah, you reached out. March 2020. Yeah. <laughs> reached out basically just wanting a bit of a lowdown, how it worked and the like. And it's kind of funny how a simple message asking for a little bit of assistance like that leads into like a massive sort of network of growth. And obviously we go back and forth on many different topics and the like. And I would say you've challenged me to think about things differently and vice versa and how networking in the industry of strength and conditioning personal training has such profound effects to both challenge, to grow, and to provide opportunities as well. Like how, how have you found that in your sort of shorter time as a coach? I think I've done a lot of networking. Um, it's not always really been intentional. I'm not like, I want to get to know this guy. But if I see something, I'll just ask the person a question. You know, I'll respond to the story or I'll comment or like you like, I, well, I was looking at actually on that specific story, I was looking at buying the My Jump 2 app. For those listening, it's this app that measures like vertical jump and RSI and different kind of qualities or different metrics. Just um, using an iPhone basically without any expensive equipment needed. Yeah. And uh, I'd, I was searching through the hashtag because it wasn't a hugely popular app and I saw Aaron's stuff come up and I saw the little location was was not that far. I was like, oh, okay, I message this dude. Um, but yeah, with networking, I think we're generally getting better at um excuse my language, but people just not getting butthurt about things. Like generally people, they, a lot of coaches and especially I think older coaches is you'll question them and they'll go, I've done this for 25 years. And I'm like, yeah, that doesn't make it right though. Very cultish sort of thinking. I'm in my bubble and you're outside my bubble. So you're the enemy. We can't be mutually exclusive. Yeah. And whereas I think a lot of the people I've connected with have been younger, uh, like between, I would say under 30, and again, that's absolutely not to say that, that there's not really open-minded people who are, you know, older. And even um, I was listening to Mike Boyle this morning on the Science for Sport podcast. And one oh, yeah. thing he, he said really stuck with me, which was asked the, the question was, what's one thing you do that everyone could learn from? And he said, I'm constantly learning. I get up at 5 a.m. I spend two or three hours learning, taking in new information, mm-hmm. trying it. And he's been doing this for 40 years and he's got a pretty good name for himself. He doesn't have to learn anymore. He could easily get by yeah. doing what he does. So just being willing to, to challenge people, but also being, being happy when people challenge you back. Like you've challenged me on plenty of things uh, and it makes me, uh, you know, some people see it as defensive, but you've got to be able to defend why you do something. Otherwise, of why course. are you doing it? You know? 
I think so, it's the yeah. sort of thing with like fitness and training in general that because it's not a one plus one equals two sort of direct correlation, there is one answer, everything else is incorrect. Like I would rather you challenge me to make a point for why I do something, whether you agree or disagree at the end of the day, like you're making me refine my thinking rather than just having something in there and going, okay, this is, this is what it is. It's a stagnant thing. Like I remember when I was a much younger athlete, probably about like nine or 10 years ago now, I had a few like knee dislocations, like patella dislocations and the like, and didn't train at the time, horribly imbalanced, like horribly tight, like awful movement patterns, all of the above. And my physio, one of the things he told me, this is an old physio at the time was that uh, anything knees over toes is awful. And you have to avoid all the shearing force and like quad extensions and all of these are, they're so detrimental to the knees and you never do it. And that pretty much stuck in my mind as a, a golden rule for five years, six years, maybe like went to the gym and I began to get into it a little more at this time and like ended up moving into a bit of a powerlifting phase and ended up probably with average numbers in terms of strength totals, like double deadlift, like one and a half body weight squat, one and a half sort of bench almost and the like. But when all of that is based on flawed concepts, it, it can be also like, it can be very inefficient and lead you down a path where you're not really getting the most out of yourself. And you basically, you're shackling yourself there with these golden rules and concepts that are so outdated, flawed, and maybe not based in anything to begin with, but that was something that I, someone that I trusted at the time told me. And I never re-questioned until much later down the line where I was basically reassessing a lot of beliefs and thought, Hmm, that doesn't actually track. Like, maybe I should explore the other side of this equation. And turns out it was a good idea to actually expose your joints to load that you're trying to get better at handling. How, have you had any experience like that? I had the exact same thing with the knee. I had um, what's called osteochondritis desiccans. And for the non-anatomical uh, boys and girls out there, essentially that's when a little bit of in my left, the lateral side of my left knee, so the outside of my left knee, a little bit of the cartilage had come off. So it was bone on bone. Mm. Uh, and it was pretty much always in that kind of quarter squat position. So my leg would really essentially give out if it was jacked up. I uh, had that for about six years, just kind of thought it would, would hope. I didn't want to stop playing basketball. So mm. I left it. What sort of age was uh, that? I probably started getting it about 14, 15. And I had surgery when I was in year 12 and I was 17. Mm. Maybe even earlier. I might have got when I was 13. Yeah. Um, yeah, essentially I was rehabbing and I was probably three or four weeks out from returning to play. So I've been lifting and stuff and the physio goes, all right, so I want you to do your squats. And it was vertical. It was essentially a good morning. It was like a standing barbell back hinge. Uh, and he's like, I just want you to squat like this, this way, you're not putting any load, you know, through your knee or whatever. And I didn't question that for a second. I thought that sounds fair enough. Why would I want to exactly. aggravate my knee? It's a qualified now, professional. Yeah, exactly. But it's not to blame that physio or the same with your physio. That's just what they've always been, you know, told. And they probably had this similar experience before them. But as, as the more I do this and it's, it was hard for a while because I was taking in so much more information. So I didn't necessarily know how to bounce it all out. Mm. It was like having all these random jigsaw pieces, but now I realize there's, there's almost none, if very, very little exercises that are holistically a bad exercise. Mm. It's just context. Like there's, there's a couple of exercises I would never do with myself because they just feel shit, even though mm -hmm. I'm pretty healthy. But um, yeah, it's, it's so contextual and opening your thinking to, understanding that unique individuals first of what they like doing but then also what their uh what their anthros and what their body shape is better suited to and what their performance is going to respond best to 
puts you in the best position to succeed as a coach. hundred percent. And it's, it's the sort of thing that can't be faked. Like you get that through time and experience with your client. Like you learn what, what triggers their funny shoulder and what you're able to get by with. Or if someone's got a bad knee, like how can I maximize getting some sort of loading through a squat pattern and a hinge pad without flaring it up. So they're not able to walk for a week. And the more you sort of have to go through those experiences where you realize that no one is 100% healthy and able to do absolutely everything. Or on the other hand, they shouldn't be able to do everything anyway, though, because it's just simply, simply too much. But the more you go through those experiences of having to work with clients and modify around certain parameters and all right, this exercise is not clearly not a good fit, whether it be regress, whether it be slightly progress because you're getting better at it, it still feels bad. You can substitute it. And the more you do that, the better you get at it. And I feel that that's something that in the past, say, sort of year and a half where I've moved out of the conventional gym sort of PT sense and been operating on a much more like outdoor model with minimalistic sort of gear has challenged my thinking so much to be able to a actually provide my clients with enough of a challenge, but B to be able to find regressions, progressions and sort of substitutions there to, to give them what they need to continue developing there as well when injured, when not injured and to try and maximize their performance as well. And I think that's something that you can look back on as sort of a, a learning experience there. And my development has come not necessarily through just intaking information, but actually the skill of coaching and yeah. being able to sort of progress through that is something that is invulnerable, sorry, invaluable. And I feel that that's quite missing from a lot of the university sort of content curriculum at the moment where like so many people go through an exercise science degree and then start to train people. Whether you've trained yourself through that time, like, yeah, okay, that's obviously a good foot in the door, but it's that's just a small piece of the puzzle. That's, I'd say, like 20% of the equation, knowing what things feel like, being able to get into positions, but you don't have any of the necessary intrapersonal skills to be able to communicate with clients. You don't have the business side. You don't have the actual coaching side or even further knowledge there. And those all are missing from the equation. Like, I, I personally didn't start training people until after uni. Looking back, I would have much rather gone in day one of my uni degree and looked for a job in the industry to develop alongside my theory. Like not necessarily that I would have been a great coach or anything like that at the time. Like I probably would have been awful, but it would have given me that much more exposure to implement things that I'm learning about at the same time with my population, you know? And that's something that I can see that you've basically grinded quite hard on to be able to get in there, get your foot in the door and balance both at the same time. So you're learning and implementing and constantly refining that balance. Whereas say the physios we were talking about before, once you finish your sort of study, quote unquote, they're feeling like you're a completed product rather than that it's an ongoing, ever expanding sort of knowledge base that you're trying to develop. The, the university one's really interesting. I, I agree with all that, by the way, but the university one in particular, because I, I very rarely speak in absolutes, but I can say with essentially absolute confidence that I have never, ever seen someone who spends an absolute ton of time studying an exercise science degree and doing all the extra work actually do some coaching and do it well. Mm. Whereas I've seen plenty of people uh, and I'll stick my hand up and say, that I'm definitely more in this category who do not the bare minimum, but they just kind of breeze through it and they know they're self-aware enough. Uh, and 
but they put them out in the field and they've just done, they've actually got some skin in the game because done a little bit of coaching. So they're much better off. So there's, I mean, you can't really put a number on it. Uh, it's, you know, 20%, I think if you were, would probably be the, you know, about right. It's probably a fifth of the knowledge and uh, 80% how you apply it. But you also, you learn so much. Like, for example, you look at a barbell bench press, right? And you say, oh, that's a pretty easy thing to coach. Like for me, even still, I still think I'm pretty shit at queuing that. You know, I've done that pretty consistently the last 18 months. You're not going to learn how to do it from one like unit where you do it for 10 minutes in some class, hmm. you know, even if you do it yourself, because queuing, you know, queuing yourself intrinsically as compared to saying it to someone else what to do is very different. So do it, doing the thing is even on yourself is a good start. It's a hundred percent better than not doing it at all, but any opportunity to train people. And one thing I did, and this is going to sound kind of stupid, but I would cue myself before I do an exercise. I'd stand there and, and I imagine I was talking to someone and be like, you're going to do this and this and this. Uh, and that definitely helped. Um, but it's, it's a skill. Like I went back to coaching basketball after we hadn't trained for like a week and a half or two weeks. And even just my delivery, it was, it was honestly, it was significantly worse. Mm. So if you're not doing it, you're going to get worse at it. And especially if you're doing it a lot, you've got to keep doing it to up. Like the more you do of something, the higher level you get to. And then the more you have to do to maintain that level. 100%. It's like, like anything, you're tapering up. You're improving yeah. towards top performance there. I think it's an interesting one there in terms of when you were saying you're queuing yourself and one unit at uni doesn't give you the, the coaching experience you need. Like it's obviously a lot more than that. Going back to more the sort of open-ended client side of it where not everyone speaks the same language you speak as well. How I might cue something to a client, they may hear completely different things to what I'm saying in terms of how they interpret it and me saying, all right, we're going to depress the scapulas, we're going to retract them and we're going to try and spread the bar with our hands they might completely misinterpret that and miss the boat and do something totally off what i'm wanting them to do there because i haven't phrased it in a way that makes sense to them there and again that's going back to sort of obviously learning the client and how they think and what what works well for them q wise like me saying to you say we're doing a, a vertical jump or something like that i want you to snap down and drive those arms up might be completely different in terms of access to me saying all right drop I want you to imagine you're putting as much force into the ground as you can and then try and get off the ground as quick as you can. Relatively similar execution cues there, but how you interpret that and orientate the sort of internal monologue of yourself doing it are two totally different things. And I feel that that's, again, something that can't be faked, something that can't be necessarily even taught through one unit like that. It's sheer experience, learning to speak the same language your clients do, like how I address uh, a 55-year-old gen pop client that wants to say rehab their shoulder or something like that is going to be completely different to a national level lacrosse athlete where they've obviously got quite a basic performance and they're speaking different languages there. But at the same time, they might not. They might be very similar. And it's learning those nuances that I feel that just can't, can't, be, can't be faked. Having a scalable toolbox of cues is probably about one of the most important things because there's people who want the technical jargon, like they want to know what that means. And they want to know on a physiological and a granular level, like what is it actually doing? And there's other people and we'll do a squat and I'll be like, put bar here, down, up. And that's 100%. enough for them. That's all they need to hear. So it's, uh, I was doing placement uh, and I saw a lot of people, like a lot of elderly clients who were uh, like super inexperienced and just general movement skill, like walking and stuff was really tough for them. Mm-hmm. Um, and just watching how the, the, I was doing an exercise physiology uh, at an exercise physiology um, gym, watching how the EPs there would break things down and just keep it really simple. And there was so little technical jargon, even though these, you know, these are people that have done 
a lot of coaching and a lot of experience. They knew what they're talking about, but they very, really, really find the need. So even if you understand, you know, anatomy and, and physiology and the body really well, it doesn't mean that those words are going to resonate with people. And very rarely they will. You know, that's why I've, I, know, I know plenty of coaches who were coaching before they went to uni uh, and they got into uni and they came out and they sort of said that, yeah, it was good to kind of touch up the knowledge and stuff. But for the most part, if you watch someone, if you shadow someone and learn how to cue and coach and exercise, you know, that's, that's a really valuable place to start. It's equally, if not as, if equally as good, if not better than going and learning the, the nuances of it. That makes yeah, sense. Yeah, for sure, for sure. I think it's an interesting one where there's a sort of a point in every coach's career where they go from, all right, I'm learning this stuff and I want to try, I want to show you how much I know. So I'm going to give you every cue under the sun. I'm going to speak in these complex anatomical terms. I'm going to try to wow you with my knowledge and show you how big my brain is. But my, like your clients don't care. They just want to achieve their goal, get their results. And however, for the most part, however you do it at the end of the day, it doesn't matter to them. So like, for example, I've got clients that want to turn up to a workout for me to give them the exact weight they're doing, say how many we're doing, how many sets we're doing, how much rest, and basically just go from there. They don't even want to have to pick a weight. Yeah. So I'm like, oh, like, what weight do you want to start at? Do you want to start at an eight kilo, a 10 kilo, a 12 kilo? I'm like, oh, you make the call. And again, that's, yeah. then that's on me to deliver that service to what they want there compared to someone else who is much more particular. Like, I feel like I want to start at this weight today and then move to this and then to that. And neither is right or wrong. Both are completely within the scope of what they want from your session, from your service. And being able to, to sort of mold yourself to both approaches there is quite important, I guess, for longevity in the industry as well. You Until you get to a point where you can basically pick and choose clients, which I'm sure both of us will get, get to at one stage, which should be good. But until you're at that point, like you need to be able to cater for everyone. And I feel that that takes practice, experience, but also, again, self-awareness, like you were mentioning before, to be able to, to see beyond your wants for the client, to see what they want from you and try and find that middle ground and meet, meet in the middle of the 50% way there. You're giving them what they're coming for whilst also getting them the results that you know how to get them. And that's definitely it's a skill that takes time. Yeah, it's, it, it comes over time. And I think the key with that is to have, you've got to have sort of a, like a, what's the word? A baseline approach, right? You've got to have your kind of general, if you're just coaching the most average person, like what would you do? So for me, I naturally would defer to trying to make someone generally quite autonomous so they can do things on their own. But as you said, there's going to be some, and this is probably something I've come around to more recently. There's going to be some people that no matter how gently you might try and say, what weight do you think? And just try and get them to think a little bit. They just don't care. Mm. They don't want to put any mental power. I see, I sort of like the EP clinic with people working high, high level jobs. They just didn't give a shit. They wanted to come in and, and have people give weights to them and tell them yeah. what to move with them and then get, take them back. So they're paying you for that. Yeah. You know, and it's, it's a lot of coaches say we want to make our athletes autonomous and yeah, you do want to make them. I think if they're, if they're a sporting athlete, you'll more often than not, they're going to want to develop some degree of autonomy anyway. But for just a general population person, I think you can sort of, you can generally head in that direction. But again, they'll make it pretty clear if they want, they want to think for themselves and if they want to learn or not. And if they don't want to, that's totally fine because they're paying you. You know, it's not your little facade and your show where you can do what you want. And, you know, you get to practice all your different things you've learned. You've just got yeah. to do what they want. 100%. It's the sort of thing where not all clients will come to you for the same reason. They're like some may completely have the knowledge but want to upskill themselves as a coach or an athlete just 
from the fact that you know more, you are more knowledgeable and are able to give them things that they wouldn't be able to give themselves, even if they have the ability to be autonomous. Or on the other hand, it might be more of a motivation and sort of discipline factor there where they have all the knowledge in the world, they're great at training, they're at a, a relatively advanced level, but they can't hold themselves as accountable as if they're employing you as a coach to basically oversee them, to keep them on task and on track. And that's something that has come around to me in the last sort of year or two where not everyone is coming to you just for the knowledge. There can be so many other factors outside that. And I feel that once you start to, to understand that and be able to, to work with that as a factor there can help you deliver a much better product at the end as well. I was very lucky in that regard because I, I generally got pretty good with my, my people skills. And I'd like to think that they're definitely ahead of my, my soft skills. So my ability to deal with people are definitely ahead of my hard skills. Um, just from coaching, like I've coached basketball for, mm-hmm. it'll be nearly 10 years. Uh, you know, when I'm, I'm only 20, that's a pretty long time. It's half my life. So I spent half my life working on dealing with different aged kids, different levels, different personality types, different parents. You see every kind of parent of the son in junior sport. Yeah. Otherwise, I'm pretty lucky. But, so you get better. And if you can talk to, you know, as a 15-year-old kid, if you can uphold an adult with a, a conversation well with a 45-year-old parent, then that's going to put you in good stead. You know, when you're a younger coach and now you're dealing with adults all the time, you feel really comfortable. And then you, yeah, because, you know, there's different types of parents in sport, right? There's those parents who think their kid, you know, their kid is the bee's knees and the entire team should be around their kid. And then there's Two those out parents. Of three parents. Who, yeah, <laughs> over 50%. Uh, again, I'm pretty lucky with that at the moment. But, and then there's other parents who are just all about the team and they, especially the ones you see, like, mainly for me, the ones that have played sport themselves, I understand how sport works and how a team has to operate. So it's, it's the same with, with personal training with clients and athletes there's going to be some clients who just want it to be all about them and you know they're the focal point and everything gets done for them and there's other ones where it's more of a mutual you know and they want to they want to learn and they you have more of a conversation and it's just about uh having the self-awareness to know what particular skill or particular tool in the uh soft skill toolbox you need to use at that moment 100 percent. if you can relate to an eight-year-old as well as well as you relate to a 45-year-old parent you're setting yourself up for success there either way. Yeah. The biggest, the biggest thing is just to listen to people, not just, yeah. And that was just listen to what they're saying and then respond. That's one thing I learned. It's strangely enough from Rogan, listen to Rogan on his podcast and he, he talks a, you know, a bit of dribble or whatever, but if generally he does a pretty good job of listening and then asking pretty good questions, if you learn to listen and actually, and think about what people are telling you, you can actually, and you go a lot deeper in thought about the best way to respond and the best way to, to, carry on with that person 100 it's not just a question and an answer it is an engaged conversation that starts with the question and then poking and prodding to to try and get more out of the, the interviewee essentially i think it does that yeah. quite well i mean you don't get that successful that big for no reason put it that way <laughs> exactly right all right so in your ideology sort of coaching toolbox can be your own viewpoint on training and the like what's the biggest realization change or just sort of development you've had over the past 12 months let's call it pandemic year oh damn okay the the one that comes to mind first which i suppose is probably the biggest one because it's the first thing that comes to my head is when when strength actually matters so the the conventional wisdom would suggest that we need to get people strong to strength standards as aaron was saying earlier you know two times body weight squat or you know two times body weight deadlift or trap deadlift 
whatever. Yeah. But they're arbitrary. First of all, there's not a lot of real proof where they actually come from. Someone just started using them. And everyone else was like, shit, yeah, they sound good. We'll keep using those. But I think people, people are married to strength because it's easy. Getting people strong is easy. It's an objective quality. You see the numbers go up. It's, it's the easiest of the physiological qualities to develop. It's much easier to get someone strong than to get someone fast. So at worst, a coach can go, okay, well, I've gotten you stronger you know, that, that vertical jump is not getting better. It'll probably come eventually. Like it might be your technique. They can probably just kind more of, strength. Yeah. It, it's an easy safety net. Right. Whereas for me, I start, I do probably for my lower body now, maybe four heavy sets a week. Um, and it's like, I'm doing a five, I'm doing a set of five with like a, a seven or eight RM. So even then it's not that heavy, relatively speaking. And just doing a bunch more stuff where I'm just trying to move things with intent. And when I'm trying to get into sp- sp- uh, positions I'll, I'll get in my sport. Um, not that you're ever going to get that real specificity, but you can definitely mimic the positions and the joint mm. angles and apply load. Uh, and then also, yeah, the other thing was on my exposure note was just not having like everyone thinks if you're going to do like a plyometric or a jump, you know, three sets of four or three sets of five. If you've got an absolutely saturated schedule and you're playing basketball four times a week, then you probably don't need much of it, right? But if you're in the off season, like why can't you do three sets of 15? Why can't you, like, why, why can't you, you know, why can't you do five sets of 10? If you develop the tolerance to do a bunch more, that's probably going to mimic the demands of the amount of jumps you do in your sport anyway. So I think you should ultimately work to a point where you're extremely tolerable to a bunch of different stuff. hundred percent. It's the example of something like, all right, you've done three sets of 10 pogo hops, but then you go and play pickup hoops for two hours. How many times do you think you're jumping and hopping and landing and explosively moving each way? Like hundreds, thousands, easy. And it's the sort of thing where I, as a bit of an experiment, would have been maybe six to eight months ago, was doing a few sessions over a couple of week period of five sets of 50 or 10 sets of 50 single leg progress back and forth each side without any break, essentially just having a hand clicker and just click, 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 hop, 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 hop. And building up to that felt fine. Like felt amazing. I felt good after that. I felt like I was warmed up by the end of that. But I've done essentially a thousand single leg pogos there, which conventional wisdom would say I'm about to blow out Achilles and ACL, all of the above. I've overloaded my legs so much, but it's such, it's just a fabrication that we expose ourselves to that in sport, but then we go to the weight room and we're suddenly brittle or we suddenly can't handle the same sort of volume. And it's definitely a bit of a disservice there, especially on my sort of viewpoint of the rehab to performance continuum, which I view as the same sort of spectrum there. Yep. bridging that gap where you've gone from the gym and you're like, all right, you're in your almost return to sport plyometric phase and you've done some, some light sprinting and you're doing like 30 pogos, 40 pogos. They're like, that's so different from that jump of that, what is viewed as a small jump from rehab to back into your sport where the demand just increases by hundreds of percents there. And it's definitely yeah. a missing link there of giving your body what you can and pushing it at the top end where you can, I would say I've seen people recover from like calf strains and the like in a week pretty comfortably by doing what they can and maximizing it every single day of their rehab there. I think, yeah, a lot of the, the conventional stuff, it puts fear in people that they're going to get injured all the time. And it's just not true. Like it's in saying that though, where people could miss would could misinterpret this is they think, oh, I'm invincible. I'm going to go out and do one thousand things. No, that's not more. Isn't always work up to that point. 
but people tend to work up to a certain, they, they put a very low ceiling on their, their ability to handle and tolerate load. They if you've had themselves. a long time off sport, yeah, you're not going to jump back in and do, you know, 300 ground contacts in your first session back. Mm. But there's no reason, you know, say, for example, for the sake of conversation, people think, oh, my max I can do is 50. I can work up to doing 50 of something. Why can't you do more? Like there's no 50 doesn't, you don't, your body doesn't break at 51. You know, your body breaks when it can't handle the load anymore. So the, the more load you can handle and it is make or break is, is, you know, it's, it's a good saying for this situation because if you, if you slowly improve and, and keep overloading and keep getting better, you're going to get to the point where you're very hard to break. hundred mm. percent. And it's, yeah, it's building that sort of resilience and toughness into your body there that allows you to then go out on field and completely express without any, like, especially if you've had a past injury that you're sort of in the back of your mind still worried about, that's going to be a massive limitation on your performance. You're not going to be able to go completely unconscious, going to essentially flow state and just play as a reaction of what you're thinking. You're going to have yeah. that all like, I mean, you see it a lot with people that have done an ACL or something quite major like that, where they've had massive amounts of rehab after, if they haven't fully ingrained that trust back into that knee, they're always, their movement patterns modify very easily to compensate for that to always sort yeah. of slightly protect one leg to never really fully like project themselves off that leg and that in turn can often lead to more injuries because of their faulty quote-unquote mechanics there or basically just loading an area that don't, like say if i've done my left acl and i haven't really fully rehabbed that well and i never really want to project properly off my left knee now my right leg is probably doing double the work that it was able to do before and without having built up to that properly like that's not really a sustainable sort of way to move myself in my sport and that's when you see a lot of people that have done one acl come back and then do the other because that other knee has had so much focus and attention and energy spent on it that the other has detrained or that they are basically just doing too much through it yeah like if you with the ACL one, even an example from today is, is James Harden. He's got a, he pinged his hammy in game one of the series. Mm. It's game, it's game six today. And he's playing, but he can't, he can't get past 75, yeah. 80%. You know, I don't know if you watched it all, but he just can't move. Yeah. Um, but, and I, you know, obviously I don't know what he's been doing for his rehab, but I would imagine it'll be a, it would be a pretty standardized rehab process where they try and do as minimal as possible and rest and stuff. But the body's extremely adaptive. It adapts to the situation you put it in. So if you, like, I know you had this with your, I think it was your calf, or you were just, mm. the day after the strain, you were doing, you were pushing it to see how much you could do within those pain limits. Yeah, 100%. And there was the, the hamstring one from Jump Science you sent me a couple of days ago where mm. a guy, he was setting PBs on his 20-meter sprint 11 days post-grade yeah. two hamstring tear because he was challenging himself physiologically to adapt and not just to go, oh, like, I'm, I'm screwed. I'm straight. Okay, no, I'm, I'm going to try and get two better. Weeks now. Yeah, I'm going to try and get better as soon as I can. So, and that's why I think that I think non non surgical ACLs will become more and more prevalent, uh, and people will realize that with proper training and, and a holistic program, they can actually work around um, they can work around a lot of those sort of things. And I'm not by no means an expert in the rehab space, but you even see uh, uh, I actually heard this story that there was a guy and he was going into theater to have his ACL operated on because he'd torn it. And they, the physio was watching and they opened his knee up and it had started like it had, it was completely ruptured, but it started regenerating like back together. That's crazy. That's they still intense. operated because the, like the surgeon's going to get paid. He's going to operate. Exactly. Whereas you have no reason to believe if it's regenerated itself, it's not going to keep getting better. You know, 100%. the body's extremely adaptive. You get to It's also, I feel it's a bit of a mindset as well. If you view yourself as weak, frail and breakable, 
that's going to be so much more relevant to your training and the like, and you're going to scale everything down and then you're just going to naturally detrain through necessarily no means of your own, but just through a drop in everything you're doing versus on the other end of the scale, what you're talking about there with a, a ruptured ACL, but like the, the prehab before you go in for surgery to obviously minimize sort of muscle atrophy there, you get your, like I know of multiple people that have gone into ACL surgery at their strongest and then come out on the other side, obviously post-surgery, very atrophied and the like, but have never gotten back to that point that they were pre-surgery, post-tear, which is a funny thing to think about when the whole point of the, the rehab is to attach it and to get better from there and to develop. But surgery can have so many complications like that as well. And obviously I'm not saying that non-surgical means, non-operative means are for everyone. Obviously you do your due diligence and find out what the best option for you is there. Sure. But it, I agree, it should become a more popular option. Like there, a couple of seasons ago, there was a college lacrosse player that was like an All-American to Wartong, which is like the, the Heisman of sort of college lacrosse there. And he had an amazing season, was in the, the top sort of five for the, the best player in college lacrosse and played the whole year on a twin ACL. If you're able to yeah. maintain that sort of standard with a multiple, like training every day, multiple games a week, you can have like, a game every sort of four to five days, like clearly the body is very adaptable to be able to handle that. And the only reason he did end up getting surgery, unfortunately, because he blew it out completely, which is one of the more, the, the other sort of risks associated that once that ACL goes, like if you aren't doing everything you can and your schedules may be too overloaded, like it significantly increases your chances of it happening. So you got to be sort of got to be a hundred with yourself there and, weigh up all the risks and factors there. But again, it shows that performance is possible in that sort of situation. The mindset thing's huge, right? Like understanding that your body is capable of a lot, but also on the other end of that, as you just kind of close with there, having the self-awareness to realize that you can't be, you can't be just uh, totally blind to your shortcomings and your issues, right? If you realize that if you go for a run and your shins start hurting, you can't go, well, my way to avoid this is going to be to do heaps more running and make my shins better. Like that's not going to work. Yeah. You've got to find a different way if you, if you want to try and, you know, improve that and build strength. And you've got to find a different way to load them. It's not going to cause discomfort and, and too, or too much discomfort or pain. And, and on the ACL thing, like for the basketballers out there, Dennis Smith Jr., who's an NBL player now, hmm. NBA player now, he tore his ACL when he was 11, but he had two ACLs in the one knee. He was a genetic freak. So yeah, <laughs> that's crazy. He was crazy. he could windmill dunk at eleven when he was five foot nine. That is just if anyone understands basketball, there you realize how just insanely crazy that is. Uh, there's always going to be genetic kind of um, outliers. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but you are you are tolerant to a lot of stuff, and the ACL thing with the post tear pre surgery strength. I've seen that as well. I've seen a bunch of dudes who are squatting like 160 kegs with a torn ACL, mm. and it just looks perfectly normal. You wouldn't even um, know if you didn't prompt them to to be told, basically. Yeah, exactly. And even um, it, it doesn't always and like pain doesn't always reflect. Even talking to Adam on my first episode of my podcast, Adam Kamatsu, it's he ruptured or tore his ACL, and he's like, "Oh, I heard a bang, but I didn't feel anything." Mm. And then like I just kind of finished my rep, or whatever, and then I noticed, oh, like my ACL's torn. I'm sorry, my, my Achilles is torn. Not my yeah, Achilles. Yeah, so it's, it's always crazy. Pain. And it obviously very much depends, I feel, on what the movement is that happens when it is rupturing. Like yeah. you see a lot of quite common in like the NBA and basketball where that sort of that false like drop step into that back foot being loaded 
is what does a lot of Achilles and the like. And some people, obviously Adam didn't feel too much of a sensation there. And then others like KD, for example, when he was on the Warriors, you could see the whole ripple of the Achilles snapping and then the calf basically bunching up and feel like you've been cut at the ankle is a, a sensation that a lot of them report there and obviously a lot of pain there. But it shows that a lot of the time you don't know that you've actually injured yourself until after when you're like, you cool down, the adrenaline wears off of the game and you're like, oh, like that's not right. And then yeah. obviously go and find out. And yeah, it's again, testament to the mind that if you're locked in enough there that you're focusing on something so much that you can sort of block a lot of other things out. Yeah. And the adrenaline thing, like that's always going to impact. Adrenaline impacts your pain receptors and your sensation a lot. Uh, I remember I was at training would have been about the start of the year. And I kind of, I took this weird kind of step where I tried to decelerate and I put my leg out in front of me and my knee was locked. So I kind of hyperextended my knee and I just felt this little twinge on the back of my knee. And I was like, Oh, that doesn't feel like much. It's like a 0.5 out of 10 kept training. Woke up the next morning, knee had absolutely ballooned. I was like, Oh shit. I wonder if I've done my PCL. Um, I couldn't really, it felt really unstable. I couldn't really load bear that well. I couldn't walk properly, Mm. but I can put, I was like, I was dunking after training. Like I was training normally. So it's, um, and it just swallowed like a balloon, and then uh, it was it was a popliteus thing. It was, but it was sore for three weeks. But yeah. at the very time, it felt absolutely fine. So the cooldown's yeah, a killer. Like, yeah, and it's even like Kobe, right? Kobe tore his Achilles and shot his free throws. Like if you, yeah, the mind controls the body a lot more than people realize. Hundred percent, hundred percent. All right. So last question here to wrap up. You get to give yourself current. You gets to give yourself from ten years ago advice. What are you telling yourself? Can be absolutely anything. Can be life. Can be training. Can be coaching. Can be sport. Go for it. I'll go one for each. Life would be save your money. Don't buy meaningless shit. Uh, sport would be spend way less time in the gym and way more time playing your sport. I was unathletic, but I was I was I was much better skill wise than I was athletically. Mm-hmm. Not that I was great great at either, but spend way more time developing the skills of the sport and the the stuff that's going to translate because you can't beat doing the thing itself. And then as for training, it may sound like I'm contradicting myself from earlier, but it would be just get really strong at basic stuff because you still do need a degree of that. If you're weak, you're not going to be able to produce force. So getting using those teenage years as kind of a warm-up to just get really strong and just get uh, really proficient at full range of motion, basic exercises. So when I flow into, you know, I'm 17 or 18, I can start doing all the fun stuff. Mm. essentially building a base there for for all of that whether it be the sporting skills whether it be your own sort of physical capacity and capabilities there once you've got that base that you have the arbitrary strength standards and the like a you've got a lot better sort of foundation to then be able to progress these more sort of nuanced position specific and different sort of variety of drills there as well as on the skill side you can be move beyond basically just jump shots and the like and stuff like that where a good example of that is kd coming into the nba camp like the i think the bench press standard is is it 185 pounds yeah which is about 80 kilos he couldn't bench at once but came out of college as one of the top prospects but i don't think that has in fact affected him too much to this day that he wasn't able to bench that i think he's still arguably quite a successful player quite a good player and a walking bucket if i've ever seen one yeah 100%. 100%. And it, it shows that that's not the be all end all. Like, there are obviously, again, he's an outlier, but you can have such good skill that you completely disregard everything about the strength standards there, i.e., Lionel Messi as well from soccer. If you want to be good at sport and you can only do one thing, do the sport and do the stuff in sport you're not good at until you get better at it. Because 
I spent so much time in my gym trying to develop. Uh, look, looking back, it was like my elasticity and just being springy and able to drive mm-hmm. to the basket. If I just practiced driving to the basket more, I would have got better at driving to the basket faster than trying to develop the qualities, which I'm then going to still have to translate into driving to the basket. So yeah. it's just going the long way around. Uh, but ideally, I did enjoy, I enjoyed lifting weights more than I did practicing basketball. So it was- It's know, all a journey at the end of the day as well. Like what was probably maybe a poor choice at the time led you to have an experience from it that then developed you and continue that cycle of you make a mistake, you learn from it. You make a mistake, you learn from it. And yeah. like- you look back and say, oh, I would have done this differently. I would have done that differently. But like, how can you be sure you'd be at the same spot now if you were obviously content with the same spot you're at without knowing that that's going to completely butterfly affect everything forward, you know? You never know. And you've always got to, you just got to take the lessons for the things you've done wrong and have the, I'm pretty big, you've heard me, heard me say it a few times, but just self-reflect enough self-awareness and know what you could have done better. But uh, yeah, and probably the only other thing would just be don't don't hop between I did a lot of those like online vertical jump programs when I was sort of 15. Oh, vert shock. Oh, I did vert shock. Don't worry. Crippling knee pain was the uh, result from <laughs> That was the exact, I think that was the exact wording I used was crippling knee pain. Uh, I never went down the functional patterns route, which is good. Um, I did manage to stay away from that. Love that. But yeah, uh, just hopping between. And there were some good ones, but I never stayed on them long enough because you always think the grass is greener and the grass isn't really that, that much greener. So it's the sort of thing as well, like, with a lot of systems like that, where they're so predicated around one specific concept or sort of movement style and the like, like it'll probably give you results initially one when you're adapting to it, when you are like becoming more proficient at it. But for a lot of them that because they're quite niche and linear like that, like functional patterns, like specific plyometric programs like that, or like ATG, a lot of the sort of training yeah. groups that exist in these days, like they're very big on one thing. And yeah, that's yeah. going to get you to a point. But once you get to that point, generally it's not going to progress to any further. Yeah. And it's being ha- having, again, the self-awareness to see, all right, like, have I gotten everything I can from this? Or would it be more economical? Even if there is still more to get from there, would it be more economical to move on to something else, to try and move beyond the base of this I've built already to something a bit more advanced or even just moving laterally to something that is just as tough, just as advanced, but completely different concept. As the Mind Pump podcast dudes say, the best results you get are when you do something you haven't done before because it's a novel stimulus and it's, that, that isn't an, uh, an invitation to go and do different stuff every single session because there still has to be some degree of, um, you've got to head in the same general direction. Yeah, mm-hmm. some degree of structure. But yeah, and even uh, on that same Mike Boyle podcast this morning, he said, someone asked, because he's huge on unilateral training, does almost always, or essentially always strength work on, on one leg or, you know, mm. in a split stance. And someone said, like, what are the benefits of bilateral training? And his exact words were, there's not really many, if any, which I think is 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 unfair because there's definitely benefits to training, doing a squat and you know, basic strength exercises. So it's not being married to not being married to a, a specific way of doing things. It's um, just knowing when to flirt with each one, I suppose. Exactly. Being able to be flexible with your approach to meet the needs and the demands of what you're trying to do there. It's all it's all the context. Like that's what I feel that they they lose in their sort of systems there that obviously it's hard to scale to a mass point without proper individualized. Sorry, we, it's hard to scale to a point of that size without generic templating and yeah. not really having an individual element to it. But the context is everything. Like a program that works for me and how I handle the load and volume and the like and the movements 
maybe totally different to you. Again, playing different sports as well completely further changes that context around what works for both of us and why we're getting the results we are. And I feel that that sort of, obviously this is more of a, a sport specific training sort of equation there rather than the more generic, like we're building base qualities, i.e. Mark Boyle yeah. and what he's talking about there. But there might be arguments for why a back squat would be better or a front squat bilaterally would be better for me over yourself. Like if I, I feel that the, the more contact involved in the sport, the bigger the base of strength uh, can provide a bit more sort of, ruggedness for lack of a better term there being able to handle those contacts is assisted by having a higher max strength or a higher relative strength there whereas say in something yeah, like basketball sure. where there's obviously a lot of contact but not to the same degree as american football i would argue that yeah. american football player is going to benefit from a back squat or a heavy bilateral squat much more than say a basketball and that's yeah. the sort of thing where speaking in absolutes disqualifies that from your sort of your statement and it's taken with that context. You need the, it's at the end of the day, it all comes down to diminishing returns. Like when you do, the more you do of something, the less and the better you get at anything. Cause there's always a cap on how good you can get at anything. Um, the more you do of something, the less room you have to improve, right? So mm. if I go from being, if I start and I can make zero out of a hundred free throws, I can probably get from zero to 40 pretty quickly. But getting from 40 to 80 is going to be a lot slower than getting from 80 to 95, I think slower, whatever. So with strength, right? Like you need to get strong. If you want to be a better athlete, getting strong is going to be a really good start because there's going to be a certain point you're going to hit where that's not going to help you anymore. And you're going to need to do something else. And then you're going to need to do something else. And then you might come back to strength later or you might, or you might not, but you just need to keep finding the thing that you're the, like you need the most. And that is the, I suppose, if you use the buckets analogy of different physiological qualities being a bucket, you need to find your empty bucket and then you need to fill that bucket until it's, you know, as full as you need it to be for that specific point in time and then find another bucket to put some water in. Chase the low-hanging fruit. Yes, the lead domino. 100%. All right. I think that might about wrap us up there. Give yourself a bit of a plug, your socials, anything you got coming up in the works as well. Uh, Instagram is Revolution Performance, but instead of an E in Revolution, it's a three. So R3, Revolution Performance. It's a bit hard to say. Uh, I'm also on, I'm on YouTube and I'm on Spotify. I have my own podcast. If you check out my Instagram, I have a link, like a links thing in the, in the website there with all that kind of information in terms of things coming out. Um, I've got some ideas in the works, which I won't publicize because I'm still juggling some things, but I'm posting pretty consistently at the moment with athletic development, general population, thoughts, ideas, exercise demos, lots of different stuff. So I'd like to think over the course of a week, I give at least one piece of content that would apply to any kind of fitness demographic. So yeah, you're firing on all cylinders at the moment, man. You're crushing it. Been lots of, lots of extra time with, uh, with lockdown. It's been good for the, <laughs> good for the socials. That's awesome. That's awesome. Well, thank you very much for coming on. Hopefully you guys all take away something from my chat with Connor day. And yeah, it's been a pleasure, man. Thanks heaps. And I really appreciate it, man. That was, uh, that was really good. Easy done. I'll catch you later. We'll do. All right. Are we squadding up now. <laughs> you stop recording. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>